The Bible is a big book. For a church to teach through all of its stories in any meaningful way would take years. So what usually happens is certain stories and characters slip through the cracks. For those of us who have spent any amount of time in church, we probably know a good deal about Abraham, Moses, David, and Jonah. We certainly should know about Jesus. But there's a good chance we haven't heard much about Deborah, or Phoebe, or Mary, or Priscilla. So, in this series, we hope to rediscover the important and often untold stories of women in the Bible. We appreciate you listening. May these stories compel us all to contemplate the beautiful and sometimes overlooked diversity of God's people. We are more than half the church. Welcome. We will now uh, get back to our sermon series entitled Half the Church. I'm really just going to read a handful of verses to you from the Gospel of Luke. And tonight might be a little bit different because I don't think there's any sort of like real hidden message in this in this passage. There's no deep-seated meaning. There might be a way that we have misread this text in the, in the past, but for the most part, there's things that we can glean from this passage right off of the page as we attempt to apply it to our lives and see how we fill the roles of some of these characters in the story. This is Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. The word of God for the people of God. So every time that I've heard this story being told, it's in the the context of the pastor sort of chastising Martha for certain characteristics in her life, namely the characteristic that Martha is a busybody. Did you guys think I was going somewhere else with that? Shame on you. Martha is the one who is trying to plan and to execute these sorts of homemaking responsibilities. Everything needs to be prim and proper. Everything needs to be put in its place because Jesus is coming over here for a meal. And we have to make sure that things are absolutely the best. And Martha is going from place to place, making sure that everything is is where it should be. And she's cooking food and she is serving. This is also the picture that we get of Martha in John's gospel in a different story. This is after Lazarus, Mary and Martha's brother, has been raised from the dead. The text says that Jesus comes over to their house and Martha is serving, or Martha is the one who is behind the scenes putting all things together. She's putting the food on the table and she's making sure the house is clean and she's making sure that everything is ready for the Lord to be in their presence. And most of the time when I've heard this passage, Martha is chastised for being a busybody because she's missing the real import of the story. And there's some real truth to that. Even Jesus, when he says this, Mary gets it. And Martha, you don't really seem to. I want to kind of read against that. But here, as we, um, 
look through this text, we can see certain details that make this make sense. My Greek's not working and that makes me sad, but I'll just walk you through it. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, it says, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. The verb there really means that she is the one who is um, hosting this, this party. We don't know about Martha's marital status. We don't know if she's just the woman of the house. It's kind of ambiguous what this means, but here in this text, Martha is the one who's opening the door and thus accepting all of the rights of hospitality within that first century culture. We'll talk about this a little bit later, but these are important cultural norms that Martha is now taking upon herself to make sure that Jesus has exactly what he needs going forward. In fact, in other stories, when Jesus is having a meal with people, he'll call out the person whose house it is to say, you have not given me the proper rights of hospitality. You have not washed my feet. Now he's, he's doing this in response in that passage to a woman who shows up and, and lavishes upon him this expensive ointment, but we see that Jesus cares about hospitality and Martha is trying to live into that. She's opening up her home to him as Jesus shows up. And she also had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet. The verb there is a reflexive verb that kind of means that Mary has taken it upon herself to go and have a seat. It's like she's, she's going exactly where she is going without any sort of invitation a, a, to go, She just says, I'm, I'm the one that's going to take charge here, and I'm going to go sit at the feet of Jesus. It says that uh, she has a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, and she's listening to what he is saying. And there's a contrast here between what Mary is doing and what Martha is doing. And the storyteller is pretty adept in making this, this comparison clear. Mary is sitting at the Lord's feet, listening to what he is saying, but Martha is distracted by all of the preparations that had to be made. Again, this Greek verb here means that she's being pulled in a number of different places. She might be wanting to be where Mary is, but she just has that something inside of her that's saying, it's not right. I gotta go check on that roast. I gotta go make sure the table's nice and set. I gotta make sure that this is where it is and that's where it is. Even if she wants to be here, she can't sit and listen to Jesus because the things going on in her mind are telling her, we have to go and make sure that this is okay. And maybe some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's difficult to sit and to just to soak in the presence of the people that you're around because there's always something else going on. And Martha is feeling this. She is distracted. She is pulled in many different places because of the preparations. I found this on the interwebs without even, I just typed in party and this is what I got. Hosting a party is fun. I want to uh, change that, adapt that. Hosting a party is stressful. If you're the type of person like me and the people over here that are nodding along saying, I get that. I, 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 can, I can sympathize with Martha because I know exactly what she's saying. There's always things that you have to do. But when you talk about having a party, now at the James household, the James household parties, which are notorious for fun. <laughs> what usually happens is, Kate's looking at me like I'm crazy, and I am. I was just trying to get you guys to smile a bit. <laughs> what happens is, uh, should have cleared this with you prior to, but whenever we have people over, it's the house has to look a certain way. We can't have people over and let them in on the reality that our house is a mess 98% of the time. We have to make sure that the, like the, the image that people get 
is where we are upstanding citizens who are very clean and our clothes are always pressed and they're never on the floor and our dog is never doing crazy things. He's always very well behaved. He's regal, in fact, and he just sits there like a prince and, and we can just pet him and he doesn't bark, he doesn't go crazy. It's just, we want to give that impression that that's who we are, but that's not usually who we are. So hosting any sort of event without people that really know who we are can be stressful. And we might want to be soaking in the company of people, but it might just be difficult for us to let that go because of all the things in our minds. Now, when Kate's not home, and you might not even know that I struggle with this, but I do. It's, it's the truth. I'm a truth teller, remember? Um, if it's me and the kids, like I watch a lot of cooking shows and I want the kids to, to get the very best from dad. So if I'm trying to make a meal or what have you, it's so difficult. I don't know if you guys have experienced this, but it's so difficult to have more than one thing ready to go at the same time. Like it's warm and it's, it's usually like, here's your peas. They're cold. Here's the roast. It's done. I don't know. Here's some bread. It's pretty stale. Like there's just things that don't usually go together. I always like, I just, whenever I go to somebody's house that knows how to host a party, it's like, wow, how did you, do you have like a warming drawer somewhere or what's going on here? But I can't get into that. But hosting a party is stressful for a lot of reasons, whether it's what the house looks like or the, or the food preparation or all these sorts of things, or even just entertaining people and not uh, living into the Maybe they're going to hate us when they leave. Maybe they're never going to want to hang out with us ever again. And as the pastor and uh, the pastor's wife, we have people over from time to time. And it's like, yeah, I thought that went really well. And then we'll never see them again. And I don't, I don't know what to attribute that to, but sometimes that happens and plays with, with my head. Okay, but hosting a party, you might not be hip to that, but you certainly are hip to life in general, which can also be stressful at times, particularly when you see this guy here looking at his phone. That's a big fat no, because he's in bed. He should be closing that down. However, this is not where I live my best life because when I lay down, my mind starts going. Doug can attest to this. There's been times when I'll just have this epiphany of stupid things that we need to do for church. And it's like two in the morning, I'll wake up and text Doug, like, we've got to do this. And we've got to make sure that's ready. And we've got to have these things. And like, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm in my scheduling mode when I lay my head down. It's not that I'm just surfing the web as the 30 and ups might say, but it's that I'm trying to plan and prepare and make sure that I'm in my Martha mode and making sure that everything is taken care of. Finally, we see this too when we deal with spiritual things. It's not just planning and preparing. It's not just my pastoral stuff where I have to get things ready to go for say an Easter party. It's also when I'm trying to connect with God. We live in such a culture where it's so difficult to turn down all of the things that are weighing on us. We've started this podcast called Methods, and it's uh, just guided prayer and meditation, and you just listen to it, and it's a soothing soundtrack, and Meredith is like tickling your, your earbuds, just kind of talking to you, earbuds, that's, yeah, that's a thing. She's saying, welcome to Methods, and like trying to guide us through this prayer, but like I have such a hard time because taking away 30 minutes of my day while my mind is starting to develop lists and things that I need to do that impedes on my relationship with Jesus and how I can practice these spiritual disciplines of prayer. Because when I close my eyes or when I attempt to put that off to the side, I'm inundated with the things that I have to do that seem to take precedence over in that moment sitting 
with Jesus and connecting with him. And I am not so dissimilar from Martha who is wanting to be in the room perhaps, but is taken over by all of the things that must be done in order, in her mind, in order to honor the Lord. Martha was distracted. I think we get that by all the preparations that had to be made. One scholar says Martha wanted to hear Jesus like her sister, but the tyranny of the urgent prevented her from doing this. What a beautiful phrase. The tyranny of the urgent, or at least what we think is urgent. In those moments, perhaps, when we're trying to, to pray or to read or to connect or even to sit across the table and have coffee with somebody, the tyranny of the urgent that says, there's other things that you need to be doing. Let's start to transition from this conversation and get back to our list of to-dos so we can cross them off and feel like we've accomplished something. Let's get back and make sure that we write all this stuff down and not really be present in this moment because there's things that are calling us and attempting to steal us from this moment. The tyranny of the urgent is something that Martha is falling prey to. She comes to Jesus and asks him, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Martha's also pretty bold here. And I think that she gets this uh, characterization because Jesus is sitting there teaching, who knows, maybe he's going over the Beatitudes again or what have you, that's some of his good material. And she just kind of busts in and says, um, excuse me, Lord, don't you care that my sister's sitting here and not helping me with the food? <laughs> bold move, Martha. You know, like we, we don't get the tone of voice in the text, but I like to play with that a little bit. You know, Martha just, I don't know if it's like, um, excuse me, Jesus, uh, do you not care what's happening? I like Martha with a little bit more of, a, of an attitude, you know? Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? I'm alone in this. Tell her to help me. How many of you have been in that moment when you feel alone in making the preparations for somebody's event to go well? Whether it's Kate vacuuming the house as I am sitting on the couch watching basketball, or whether it's something else where uh, you, know, you might be doing something else to, to prepare for a guest where you feel alone, and this is what Martha is feeling Especially when you factor in this, this bit about hospitality in the first century, somebody must do this. And for Martha, she feels as though it can't not be done. I need help to do this. So she intercedes to Jesus to say, get her to get on board with me. Martha, don't be such a busybody. That's the reading of this scripture that we usually have. Martha, you're, you're in such the wrong place. Your, your mind is, is not where it should be. Forget about the roast. Forget about sweeping up the pantry. Forget about whatever it is that is bothering you and sit in this moment and be like your sister. But we get where she's coming from. If we allow ourselves to go there, I think in different ways we understand the difficulty that she is having with letting go and just sitting at the feet of Jesus. I would even argue that most people in our culture have really no concept what that looks like or what that should look like, just to sit and soak and to reflect, just to be in the presence of Jesus. We say that kind of stuff a lot, but you ever tried it? Where you just sit and have your mind kind of focus on him and not focus on the list of things that you need to do. We are not so dissimilar from Martha, and Jesus responds, Martha, Martha. It's always notable when he repeats someone's name a couple of times. 
It's a, it's a sign of, of endearment and closeness. Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things. And if I could like just pick a life verse for myself, it would probably be this first half here. Josh, Josh, you are upset and worried about many things. You know, like, cause that's, that's where I live most of the time. And perhaps even tonight, you, you might not be able to uh, empathize or sympathize with Martha, but there's a lot of people in the room that perhaps this is where we live. We're worried and we're upset about many things and that causes us to have not a terrible time, but not the time that we could have because we are wanting everything to go off without a hitch. Jesus says, few things are needed. And this is some, some weird textual stuff that's going on here. Some people would say that he's, what he's referring to is both the scope of the meal that she is trying to prepare, as if to say, Martha, calm down. Some bread and cheese is cool. We don't need a nine-course meal. It's, it's okay, you know, we'll be okay. But then he goes on to say, only one thing is needed. And there it's not just about a meal. Jesus is saying your focus is in the absolute wrong place. You're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, perhaps at the table. And indeed, only one thing is really needed, namely for you to connect with me. Mary has chosen what is better. Uh, the Greek actually says she has chosen the good portion. Again, a play on this meal. Like Mary has chosen the good meal for herself. Namely, the meal that will not be taken away from her. Namely, the meal of, of being with me. Meanwhile, you've got these nine courses that you're trying to put out to impress or just to have dinner that is good enough for me, who knows? But he says that Mary has chosen the good portion, the good meal. She's not worried with all the details that you are. She's just sitting here and soaking in the things that I have to say. At the core, what this text is about is choosing to order one's affairs properly. I've been trying this out here earlier. It's not listening versus acting. This is how a lot of people think that this text is. It's not that Martha uh, was doing, 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 and, and Mary was just sitting and listening and contemplating. That's not the contrast that's being shown here. It's actually, it's not listening, which Martha is not listening to Jesus because she is so busy with all of the things that she needs to do. The contrast is between Mary who is listening and Martha who is not listening because she's not allowing herself the space or the margin to sit and to reflect and to hear what Jesus is saying. This text is about choosing to order our affairs properly. And we can dip into this. And if you actually could see what you've done with your week and see where all of your time has been spent, Kate and I use an app called mint.com. And if we really want to like get in that mode of suffering, we can see how we're spending money and how much of it is going to local coffee shops. It's a lot. It's not something that we want to look at, but we can just hit a button and see where our money is going. It's a wonderful free tool. But if we had that for our time, where would it be? How would it be, how would it be spread out? Do we have time? Do we have margin for listening to Jesus, do we have time for acting upon what Jesus is asking us to do? Because he didn't want Martha to do nothing. He just wanted her to do the right things. Forget the nine-course meal. Just set out, set out a cheese plate and let's, let's get to learning. One scholar says this is Luke's message to the disciples. Sit at Jesus' feet and devour his teaching. 
since there is no more important meal. Sit at Jesus' feet and devour his teaching. What does that look like for us? And I don't want to hear about like the, the details. It means like, I know you get up at five in the morning, and you whip open your New Testament, and you turn on Caleb, and you, you do all that. Like, I don't, what does it look like for us to have that time where we are focused on the teaching of Jesus, to devour it, because that is what is of priority for us as followers of Jesus? Does it happen? Or every time when we sit down, do we just start thinking about all of the things that we need to do and how we need to move away from that room to go take care of business because that's really where Jesus is going to be pleased. If we just do more, if we just do better, then Jesus will want us. Are we locked into this earning relationship with Jesus or are we able to sit and to devour his teaching, whether that's through um, reading the word, being with people together and having spiritual conversations, encouraging one another. It looks different for different people and I hope it looks multifaceted for all of us that we're, we're moving in a direction where we can sit at Jesus's feet metaphorically to devour that teaching so that we can live and do the things that he is asking us to do. That's sort of the first way of reading this passage. And just real quick, I think there's a, a different and maybe even a better way of looking at this text because what we've just done is we've looked at like four or five verses and we've just kind of plucked it out of Mark's uh, context and, or excuse me, Luke's context. And we've just read them and we've tried to make sense of them. But understand that every time we look at the Bible, there's a larger context that is set there as well. And immediately before this passage, we have a story that's very familiar to most people that's set up by a question that Jesus gets. It says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. He says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds, what is written in the law? Have you read it? And the guy answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the guy wants to justify himself, so he asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? Which introduces one of the most well-known parables about the Good Samaritan, where a man is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and on the way, he's beaten up, and he's set off to the side of the road, and he's passed by a priest and a Levite, and a Samaritan finally shows up and helps this man. Now, in the ancient context of this story, that is the most unlikely ending that could be written because uh, Jewish people hated, hated with a fiery passion, the Samaritans. They wanted nothing to do with them and nothing good could come from them. And the fact that Jesus is telling this story about a Samaritan who is helping a Jewish person ostensibly and bringing him back to health and, and paying his wages at this hotel sort of thing and, and trying to give him ointments that he needs to get better. Jesus is, is turning this on its head and saying, who is the neighbor to this man who is hurt? And perhaps as the word is coming out of the mouth of this, this legal expert saying, the Samaritan, you can see the hatred. You can feel the prejudice. You can, it's palpable in the moment where Jesus has set him up to say the hero of this story is the Samaritan, the guy that I hate, the guy that I keep at an arm's length. And this is the story that Jesus tells to demonstrate who is, is loving their neighbor and who is the neighbor that we should be helping and what have you. 
And then it goes right from that story into this weird dinner scenario about Mary and Martha. And what some scholars say is in the story of the Good Samaritan, we have an example of what it looks like to love your neighbor. And in the Mary and Martha story, we have an example of what it looks like to love God. Because what we see in this story is Mary, who is is loving Jesus by being in his presence and not being pulled away like Martha. And we have an unlikely example of a person who is loving their neighbor, the hated Samaritan who is kept at an arm's length that nobody wants to deal with, that nobody wants to hang out with, that nobody wants to talk to because they are the other. They are the marginalized. They are the ones who have been ostracized. And Jesus says, actually, you can learn a lot from a Samaritan. And in this passage where Jesus is is demonstrating who loves God, it's not the legal expert. It's not the pastor. It's not the person who has spent their entire life studying in devotion to Jesus. Who is the example of loving God with everything that they have? Mary, a woman who defies cultural norms by saying, you know what, Martha, I'm going to go sit with Jesus because he's got something to offer. I'm just going to snuggle in right here. That verb, remember, it's reflexive. She's taking it upon herself to be in that room and just kind of snuggling down, sitting at the feet of her rabbi to learn from him and to grow. These are unlikely examples of people that are loving neighbor and loving God. One scholar says the picture of a woman in the disciples' position at the feet of Jesus would be startling in a culture where women did not receive formal teaching from a rabbi. Another scholar says, for a Jewish audience, it would be of great significance that a place was given to women by Jesus, not simply to do domestic duties in the church, but to listen and learn. In fact, like in in the back of folks' mind, this is certainly not indicative of every Jewish person at this time, but there's rabbinic teaching where Rabbi Judah says, a man must recite three benedictions every day. And again, just for sake of clarity, rabbinic teaching is notoriously difficult to date. Perhaps this is underlying some of the things going on in Jesus' time, but this might be a little bit later as well. But here are the three prayers that he is saying at some point in Jewish history that a man must recite, praised be thou, O Lord, who did not make me a gentle who did not make me one who is outside of the Jewish family. Thank God I'm not one of those folks. Praised be thou, O Lord, who did not make me, the the term there is, is a bore. It really just means a pagan, somebody who just doesn't get it. They're completely immoral, completely unholy. Thanks be to God that I'm not one of those, that I'm not somebody who's not Jewish and that I'm not a complete pagan. And also, praised be thou, O Lord, who did not make me a woman. Woo, good news for me. And perhaps this teaching, this prayer is underlying some of these cultural and societal norms as Jesus is demonstrating the person who really understands what it looks like to follow me is Mary. The person who is able to say, I'm not going to do that. And instead, I'm going to snuggle in right here and sit at the feet of Jesus because I understand that he's worth something, that he's worth my time, that he's worth everything that I have just to hear him, just to learn. It says that she, she sits by him so that she can hear what he's teaching. She can hear his word, the things that he's, he's proclaiming, their life. And Mary gets that and she sits down and says, Martha, we can worry about this some other time. Let's listen. And the tyranny of the urgent tears Martha away, but Mary gets it. The New Testament is so awesome because it gives us these little beautiful treasures of how Jesus is so radical and turns things on its head. Finally, 
One final scholar, Joel Green, says, Mary and with her, those of low status who are accustomed to living on the margins of society, they need no longer to be defined by socially determined roles because Jesus makes room at his feet for the people who do not belong to be there. Jesus makes room for Mary to come out of the kitchen and to sit at his feet because she understands that that's where life is. Jesus makes room for the most unlikely of people to be in the family. Jesus teaches stories of the Samaritans who have been kicked out and says, actually, they get it. You don't. Jesus makes room for the women who have been prayed that we're Folks are saying, I am so glad that I'm not this because they can't follow the whole law. They can't be this. They can't be that. But Jesus says, well, she's going to be something. And she's going to sit right here. The way that this story culminates is when Jesus is raised from the dead. The first person that understands who, what this gospel is, they're women at the tomb. And Jesus entrusts them with this gospel message. They're the first preachers of the gospel. And Jesus says, culture be damned. I'm going to give this word to a woman. And we see in this passage, Jesus allowing this to happen. And Mary and anybody else who's on the margins of society, they don't need any longer to be defined by socially determined roles. And this is where we will stop. And this is where I will push us because this is where I think we don't get it. There are other examples of this. We don't live that way. I look good, got my shirt pressed, haven't sinned a lot today. Jesus must be real pleased to have me in the family. You guys look good, clothes look real nice, you smell pretty good too, and you're here on a Sunday night. Jesus must be pleased to have you. I get this a lot because we talk about the folks on the margins a lot, and sometimes there's a kickback. Well, what about us? We talk so much about the people on the margins. Well, what about, what about us? And I get it. I get, I get where that's coming from. But let me make this very clear to us. According to Jesus and according to Paul and according to the New Testament, we are the folks on the margins who are unlikely additions into this family because we were lost, but we've been found because we don't belong here, but Jesus says, you're gonna come and you're gonna sit with me. Because we are the ones that might not have this seat at Jesus's feet, but he says, I'll make room for you. We are, in a sense, Mary and the people who have been ostracized, but we forget that. And we have some sort of entitlement that we are due a relationship with Jesus, the creator of the, of the universe and the spirit that is, is indwelling in us, we have gotten to a point where we say, yeah, that makes sense. I should have that. And I think what we learn from this passage, if nothing else, and not to diminish the role of Jesus where he is completely turning this gospel on its head by introducing Mary as one who is at his feet, rightfully so, we forget and up until this point, for most folks, remember they prayed, praised be thou, O Lord, that you haven't made me a Gentile. And in the same way that they would write off the women, they would write off everyone in this room. 
But Jesus says, I will make a way. And I will allow you to be at this table. And when we understand that, the way that we share the gospel with others should be one that is so inclusive and so accepting. Where we say, Jesus has made a way for you to be here at this table with other unlikely folks who don't really belong, but he said, come on in, your family, I want you. I don't know where you guys are tonight in your faith journey. I don't know where you guys are or where you have been in the things that you have struggled with, wrestled with, the, the ideas that you have about, about God and about faith and about what this gospel is as we look towards Easter, as we celebrate the resurrection. For some of us, perhaps that's just really strange and really weird and we don't quite get it. I wanna break it down very simply for you in this moment. Jesus has allowed us to be family with him, to be seated at this table, to share in the meal that we share every week to be reminded of his consistent presence, to be reminded of the forgiveness that is granted us when we are so sinful and so lost, when we are so far out. And he says, I want you back. I want you in this family. I want you to be with me. We understand perhaps now that through Jesus, he has carved out a seat for us at his feet and we can devour his teaching and learn and grow. And not only that, but we can invite other people in. The folks on the margins and the outskirts, which in your mind that might immediately go to homeless people, broken people, people that have been ostracized, but it also means the people that live right next door to you, the people that might not be stereotypically ostracized and marginalized, but they too need the gospel. They too need Jesus to say, come and sit at my feet and, and experience the life that I have that's for you. This evening, I hope that if you're sitting here and you haven't experienced that, that maybe today is a day when you put a flag in the ground and you say, that's where I wanna go. And like Mary, you say, I'm gonna nuzzle right in here. I'm gonna carve out some space and I'm gonna sit here and I'm gonna follow Jesus. And if we've forgotten that role and responsibility and that beauty where we have been accepted when we don't even deserve it. Perhaps tonight might be a time when we remember that and we move towards a whole other level of pursuit to follow Jesus, to be present, maybe to say no to that list of stuff that dominates our minds and to sit at his feet and to devour his teaching and then to go and to live it out. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of TRP's podcast. The Restoration Project is a church affiliated with a cooperative Baptist fellowship located in Salisbury, Maryland. If you're in the area, we invite you to join us for one of our weekly services on Sundays at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, we believe that there is room for you here. For more information, please visit our website at www.restoresby.org. And for past teachings, feel free to check out our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com slash restoresby. Or to make it easier, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. We hope to see you soon.